If you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4, that'll be our text this Lord's Day as we continue to walk through this new study of the book of 1 Samuel. If you've been with us, you know the first three chapters of 1 Samuel have centered around the birth of Samuel and the calling of Samuel as Israel's prophet and priest and judge, beginning with his parents and leading up to his birth narrative and then into that calling and what we'll find in today's text in chapter 4 and what will carry us down through the beginning of chapter 7 is a a bit of a shift in the narrative because now uh, what will be at the center of this text and text in future weeks is the Ark of the Covenant, God's holy Ark. And what we'll see in today's text is how the Israelites, God's people, try to use the Ark uh, for their own agenda and it doesn't go well for them at all. And so we'll see how God deals with his people as we walk through this text together. So today, uh, we're just going to look at the first 11 verses of 1 Samuel 4. And out of reverence for God's word, if you're able, if you would stand as I read this text for us. This is the inspired word of God that he's revealed to us. And this is what God's word says. 1 Samuel 4, beginning in verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines, and they encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Ephek. Philistines drew up a line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the Lord sent to Shiloh, or so the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, Who or what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid and said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us. For nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines. Least you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the Ark of the Covenant was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. If you would pray with me. Father God, we read this morning a piece of history. Uh, historic battles that took place among the people of God and their enemies. And, and we see, Lord, in this battle, 
lessons that we need to learn today. And so I pray that we would learn them. I pray we would listen to your word intently. And I pray, God, that as we do, you might help us to see how we can best glorify you in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the last few months, we've seen all types of reactions to the coronavirus. I've been interested to watch to see how uh, prosperity preachers, health and wealth gospel teachers have responded to this time in our, our world's history when there's been this, this virus, this sickness that, that just hasn't gone away. In March, one famous prosperity preacher here in the U.S. made headlines when he claimed that people were being cured of COVID-19 by simply putting their hands on the TV screen. And so during his broadcast, he would invite anyone who had coronavirus to, to just have faith and to touch their TV screens. And then he would reach out to the camera. And then as he did that, he would say this, I take it, I have it, and it's mine. And with those words, he said that they were healed. Later that same month, the same prosperity gospel preacher said this, As people of God, we have dominion and authority over COVID-19 because Jesus has redeemed us from every curse, which includes sickness, disease, and every plague. And then just a few weeks later in another broadcast, the same prosperity preacher uh, looked at the camera and simply blew into the camera and said that he was blowing the very breath of God and that with that breath, coronavirus was now cured around the world. It should come no, to no surprise that coronavirus was not cured around the world with that breathing. But it also shouldn't surprise us that people would make claims like this. Because we have within this prosperity gospel, this, this health and wealth gospel, this teaching that if you just have enough faith, then you can overcome anything, any sickness, any disease, that these things come to us as a lack of faith on our part. And if we have enough faith, we will not suffer. These teachers tell us that God wants us to have victory. In fact, they tell us that we already have victory. You just have to get your negative thinking out of the way to realize it. They tell us that God's plan is for us to prosper, not to suffer. That your negativity, your disobedience, your lack of faith is what's keeping you from prosperity. Their mantra is, we are victors, not victims. The question for us is, how do we reconcile that with places in the scripture like our text today where we find that God's people are always not victors? That God doesn't always deliver victory to his people. That in fact, there are times like today's text where he brings to them defeat and he is equally glorified through it just as he does when he brings victory. See, what we find as we study, not the God we want, but the God who is, is that that God desires that we glorify him and he will be glorified through both victory and defeat. And that's what we see in our first point there in your outline as we begin our study of this text. God is sovereign over victory and defeat. We begin with verse 1 there where we're reminded that the word of Samuel had come to all Israel. Now again, this was a dark time in Israel's history. 
Now, this was a time when rarely was a word of God given to the people because the, the people who were supposed to be giving these words, the priests and the prophets and the judges, so often they were corrupt and they were wicked. <coughs> Excuse me. We have, for example, uh, sons of, the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, who, who the scripture tells us were worthless men. And these men didn't know God, they didn't follow God, they didn't trust God, so they distorted the word of God, and they certainly distorted God's instructions. They were disobedient and they were wicked men. And so this was a time of darkness because these were the people who were supposed to be leading the people of Israel, but they themselves weren't trusting in God. But then we have Samuel come into this time of darkness, and Samuel is a light. He's one who seems to be truly trusting God, following God, and now God is speaking his word through Samuel. And we're reminded here that that word is now going out to all of Israel. But we're also reminded that it's not just the words of Samuel that God is using to speak to his people. In this case, he's also using defeat to speak to them because we read that they went to battle with the Philistines Philist, uh, as they went to battle with them that they were defeated. Now if you know much about God's word you know that Philistines were enemies of God's people. Uh, we first read about them in the book of Judges. Perhaps one of the most famous encounters we see in the book of Judges is when Samson uh, who was a judge over God's people when he did battle against them and we find that after he's betrayed and captured in the hour of his death that, that he is gathered there with all these leaders among uh, the Philistines who were the enemies of God's people. The scripture says there were 3,000 there and, and in his death God gave him the power to bring down buildings on top of them so that they were completely obliterated. Now this struck a huge blow to their people. But what we see is over time as they rebuilt and restructured and added to their number that now they are back in battle with God's people. And so by the time we get to 1 Samuel chapter 4, we see God's people going out to do battle against them. Now imagine what the mindset of God's people probably is. I mean they know their history. They're still in the time of Judges. Samson wasn't that long ago. And so they're probably thinking, if a defeated and downcast, strengthless, blind Samson could take out 3,000, well, how many more can we slay with our army of thousands? It's a picture here of them trusting in their own strength. So they go out to do battle, and what do we read? Well, God brings defeat. And so in this defeat, verse 2, Israel was defeated and 3,000 men were killed on the field of battle. And so the Israelites come back to their camp. And things did not go as they thought they would go. And so we read in verse 3 that they ask a good question. It says, when the people came back to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Now this may seem like a peculiar question. And we might expect them to regather back in their camp and start to look at their battle strategy and start to look at where their lines fell apart and start to look at their weaponry and start to look at how they might uh, fix these things for their next time in battle. But what we see is that even during one of the darkest times in Israel's history, the people still understood that God is sovereign. And they asked the right question. Why has the Lord defeated us today? Because even though this defeat came through these enemies, they understand it was the sovereign hand of God that allowed this defeat. And they understood this because this is a pattern in the book of Judges. 
What we see during this time is that God's people often would be defeated as a means through which God was bringing judgment against them. And so you see this cycle where God's people uh, would listen to him. They would trust in him. He would send a judge, a prophet to speak his word. And then uh, they would drift away. They would start to disobey. They would start to sin. And then God would judge them through bringing their enemies to defeat them and conquer them and at times enslave them. And so then they would repent and they cry out to God and then God would give them victory and he would restore them. And then this cycle would continue over and over and over again. So it would seem that at this point, there are at least leaders among the people of Israel who understood that this downward spiral, that this defeat that had come, this was God's hand at work. Because God is sovereign over both victory and defeat. So the people are asking the question, God, why are you allowing this? God, why did you bring this? And friends, that's a question that you and I should ask today. We are quick, it seems, in the church when things go well for us. We're quick at times to thank God and to praise God. Maybe you've had a conversation this morning with somebody in this room where you were asking them how they were doing. Maybe they got some good news this week. Maybe they had a good report from a doctor. Maybe a procedure went well. Maybe there was something in their life to celebrate. And maybe your response to them was, well, praise God for that. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. We, we attribute these blessings very quickly to the Lord. The question is, do we also attribute suffering and defeat and sickness and these other things? That God is at work through them as well. I mean, you take, for example, the situation we're in around the world today with COVID-19. I mean, all of us have had conversations in recent months about this. And we talk about things. Well, where did it come from? Did it come from a bat or did it come from a lab? Was this accidental or was this intentional? We, we debate how we're to respond to it. Should we wear a mask, not wear a mask? Should we wash our hands? Should we uh, be careful about this, that, and the other? Should we have our kids go back to school? Should we not have our kids go back to school? We have very strong opinions and we have lots of conversations about these things. And those all have their place. And that's all well and good. But the fundamental question we need to make sure we don't ignore is this. God, why are you allowing this? If God truly is sovereign, and I believe he is, then God, why has this pandemic come to us? However you feel like it came, it did not come through a way that escaped the sovereign hand of God. And so we as God's people should step back in times like this and ask the question, God, why is this here? And God, what do you want to teach us through it? And what we find historically, friends, in the life of the church is that when pandemics come, when crises come, when suffering comes, God has a way of using these things to draw our attention back to him in a way that maybe it wasn't before. He has a way of using these things to increase our dependency on him and our trust in him. Because sometimes when things are going really good and everything's just cruising along just fine, we become very self-sufficient. But when our self-sufficiency is literally stripped from us, then we are forced at times to our knees. And we learn more about our faith. And we need to ask questions as we do that. God, why is this here and what do you want to teach us through it?
And so we see the Israelites, I believe, on the right track here. They're, they're asking the right questions. The problem is, like us so often, they quickly try to answer their own question. Which brings us to the second point there, number two. That God is not controlled by superstitious spirituality. God is not controlled by superstitious spirituality. And so instead of truly seeking God for the answer, they quickly answer it themselves. It's almost as if they're just throwing this question out because it's the spiritual thing to do, but they already have their minds turning on how they're going to fix it. It might be like you and I today. Someone tells us about a concern and they say, uh, would you pray for such and such? And we say we will pray, but before we even get done saying we're going to pray, our mind starts turning and spinning on what we can do to resolve the thing that they ask prayer about. Well, we are a fix-it people. Well, we want to get our hands in there. We want to do things. But oftentimes in that process, what we fail to recognize is our need to trust in God and go to God. And even if he's given us the means to fix things, to do things, to stop and consider, God, is this the step you want us to take? And we see here a failure on behalf of the Israelites to do that. In fact, what we see is they just respond in a very superstitious way rather than truly trusting in the Lord. Because rather than seek God's provision and God's protection, they just look for a way to harness God's power. And they decide to go get God's holy ark. Verse 3 continues, they say, Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Now we've studied about the ark before as we walked through the book of Exodus together and as God gave his instructions for the temple and the tabernacle and we've studied how the, the ark was encased in gold and this was placed in the, the most holy place there in the temple. It was to symbolize the very presence of God himself on the day of atonement. It was the blood of the sacrifice that would be put there on the ark of the covenant. The picture there was of the holiness of God and that atoning work of the blood. We know that there within the ark, there were three things that were placed. There was the jar of manna, that bread that God provided miraculously to his people in the wilderness. There was Aaron's staff that had miraculously budded. It was a picture of God's authority over Israel. And there were the Ten Commandments, the covenant that God makes with his people through Moses. And so the ark was this, this holy, holy object there in that most holy place. It was not to be touched by human hands. It had rings on it and, and a rod that would go through on either side. It was to be carried that way because it was not to be touched. And so the question is, why would God's people take this object was to signifying God's holiness and the atoning work of the blood sacrifice? Why that? Well, why did they want that to take into battle with them? And why did they think that then would ensure that they would have victory in their battle? Well, they knew their history. And they knew that there were times that God had commanded his people to carry the ark in such a way that it, it signified his power going before the people. And so, for example, uh, during the Exodus, we see as the tribes of Israel were marching during the Exodus, there in front of them was the ark of the covenant. Now, when God's people walked around the city of Jericho and the priests went around, when they blew their trumpets and the walls fell down, they carried with them the Ark of the Covenant. 
And when Israel crossed the Jordan into Canaan, the ark went before the people as a sign of God's promised victory. And so while God had instructed at these times to have the ark there, the people simply looked at that as a symbol of God's power. And they want to harness God's power. And so in a very superstitious way, rather than trust in the Lord, they're now trusting in this object. Rather than ask the Lord to provide and protect, they just want to harness God's power. So they go and they get the ark and they bring the ark there to their camp. And notice we see here who brings the ark to the camp. (laughs) Hophni and Phinehas. Now that alone should help us to understand the heart of the Israelite people. Because the scriptures already told us that all of Israel knows how wicked these two men are and knows about their exploits. And yet these were the men that were entrusted to carry this holy object before the people. It helps us to see that this was more superstitious spirituality than it was truly trusting in God. And it reminds us that God is not controlled by our superstitious spirituality. And yet, friends, we see it everywhere, especially in times of battle. Even in modern times, you study throughout the history of war and you see so often both sides believe that they're on God's side. And we even think about just wicked regimes like the Nazis during World War II. The Nazis during World War II believed God was on their side. Those Nazi soldiers had German written on their belt buckles that translated read, God is with us. They believed they were fighting as part of God's army, as did those who fought against them. You study the Civil War, you find that both soldiers in the north and soldiers in the south felt that they were doing the will of God as they went to battle. But it's not just war where we see this. We see superstitious spirituality in our day-to-day lives. We hear people tell us, well, if you'll just pray this prayer, you can receive this blessing. If you're lacking something in your life or a certain resource or something specific you really need, well, you just need to figure out what saint is attributed to that. And then if you just have a little statue of that saint and use it in such a way, well, then you'll receive that resource or that blessing. When you have a bad day, well, that's because you didn't pray enough. You didn't read your Bible enough. And so perhaps the next day you think, well, I want to have a better day, so I'll read the Bible. And your day doesn't go well enough, so you think, well, maybe I just need to read it more. Things aren't going well at work. Things are just falling apart. Deals aren't coming together. Well, maybe if I just kind of place my Bible out here on my desk, maybe things will get better for me. There's all types of superstitions we've developed along the way. And essentially, we're doing what God's people were doing in 1 Samuel 4. We're trying to take these objects or these practices and use them in such a way to harness the very power of God. Friends, that's not how it works. One commentator I read this week referred to this approach to our faith as rabbit foot religion. He said this about it. Our concern is not to seek God, but to control Him. Not to submit to God, but to use Him. So we prefer religious magic to spiritual holiness. And we're interested in success and not in repentance. Friends, is that true of you today? Well, when you think about even why you're here at church this morning, When you think about why you open up God's Word, if you open up God's Word, 
When you think about what drives you when you pray and why you pray and what you're praying for. Is the focus there usually on blessing and success? Or is that focus on seeking to know the God who has revealed himself and his holiness that draws us into repentance and into faith? A clear sign that we are seeking success is the prevalence of superstitious spirituality in our lives. And as the Israelites show us in this passage, and as I hope we'll learn as we continue through it, this does not move the hand of God. And so what happens here? They go and they get the ark, and we have this picture of the ark coming in. And again, the people are excited. They're they're yelling. They're screaming. they're, They're cheering. But what are they cheering for? Are they trusting in God? No. It seems they're just trusting in this wooden box encased in gold with these two worthless sons of Eli bringing it into the camp. And this does not move the hand of God. And so they take the ark into battle but it doesn't bring them the victory they were hoping for and they are defeated yet again and this time many more die. It's a reminder to us, friends, that third point in your note of this, that we are not to be deceived. God is not mocked. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Their plan failed. Their situation got worse. They lost 4,000 men the first time. Now 30,000 die and God brings his promised judgment against Hophni and Phinehas. Just think about that for a moment. We read earlier in 1 Samuel about their worthlessness and about their sin. We read earlier about God's rebuke. Uh, to Eli about his sons. And Eli goes and confronts his sons. We read about how God gives his word to Samuel. And Samuel also says this judgment is coming. But the indication is here that years have now passed. And so the word has come. Judgment is coming. But the situation doesn't change. Hophni and Phinehas go about being worthless men, worthless priests doing wicked things. They don't repent. They don't change. And perhaps for them... They're not that afraid of God's judgment because God hasn't brought his judgment yet. Sure, there's word that judgment's coming. But practically speaking, nothing's really changed. I wonder if in this moment in the history of Israel, if God was giving Eli and his sons an opportunity for repentance. Well, we see that throughout God's word where God will say, this is what I'm going to do. This is the judgment I'm going to bring. And we see at times repentance And then God doesn't bring that judgment. We see his mercy and we see his grace. But here there's no repentance. In fact, the only response we see comes from Eli when he says, well, it's the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. (laughs) I can't imagine a more passive response to the coming judgment of God than that. Well, God's going to do whatever God's going to do and just let him do what he thinks is good to him. And so there's no repentance. And I wonder if there's no repentance because Eli's sons and Eli simply thought that that judgment was not coming. And I wonder if today many of us share in that same deception. We read God's word. We hear God's word preached. We hear all these things that we're to repent of. But then we go about our daily lives and we don't repent of them and nothing happens. In fact, it seems that everything's just kind of going along fine for us. 
When we know that God said to do things this way and we're choosing to do things another way, but it seems our way is working out pretty good for us. And then we hear a pastor or we read a verse and we're called to repentance and we're told, well, no, this way we're choosing is sinful and God's wrath is coming and this is real. But then we step outside these doors and we go about our day-to-day lives and we don't experience this judgment. Think about how long the church has warned the world about the coming wrath of God and the return of Jesus. And yet today, friends... Jesus hasn't returned yet. And so as the days go on and the years go on and the decades go on, I think we fall into this same trap as Eli and his sons of thinking that this delayed judgment means judgment's not coming. But we're reminded here that that's deception and that God is not mocked and that we indeed will reap what we sow. Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 7, do not be deceived God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so the sobering reminder to us from God's word this morning is this, friend. Your sin and my sin will be found out. And God's judgment and God's wrath is real and it's coming. And a wooden box covered in gold is not going to save us. But the one that that wooden box covered in gold pointed to indeed will save us. God gave his ark to the people that they might see in front of them a picture of the atoning work of the blood of the lamb. It was to point them directly to Calvary where we see Jesus Christ, the lamb of God on the cross, shed his blood that you and I might be forgiven from this wrath that is coming, this very real judgment from God. That box in the tabernacle doesn't save us, but the one it pointed to does. And so the reminder to us as we read about this judgment that comes against God's people for not trusting in him, that comes against Hophni and Phinehas for not trusting in him, that will come against Eli as we continue next Lord's Day, that judgment that we rightly deserve from God has been taken on by Jesus Christ on the cross. He is our Ark of the Covenant. Why we read in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. Friends, this morning Jesus Christ is our only hope and tonight He will be our only hope and tomorrow He will be our only hope and for the rest of our days He will be our only hope. So put your trust in Him. Hold firm to Him. Run fast with Him. Walk by faith and not by sight. That our story might not end like these Israelites who fell in battle and like Hophni and Phinehas. But our story might end as we read in the book of Revelation in glory. As we're surrounding the throne of our God and singing him praises. That's not going to come through rabbit foot religion. And that's not going to come through supernatural spirituality. But it does come when we put our trust in Jesus. And so we invite you to do that today. If you would, pray with me. Father God, we thank you for your word. I pray we would live according to it. I pray, God, this morning that you would do a work in us, that you would reveal 
this superstitious spirituality that maybe we've been carrying around for a long time. And maybe we've been looking to you as more of a lucky rabbit's foot than as a true sovereign over us. And maybe even the way we approach your word, Lord, is we're, we're looking at it as a gimmick, as a gadget. If we just pray this prayer, if we just read this verse, if we just claim this promise, all will go well. But Lord, help us to see the truth of your word, that you've revealed yourself to us in it. And that you've shown us how we, a wicked, unrighteous people, might be saved. And help us to put our trust, not in a wooden box or any other object, but in Christ, our Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.